Welcome, everyone, to the Ford Wholeness Podcast. My name is Richard Dahlstrom. It's very good to be with you. And today, the topic that we're considering is a topic that is poignant and appropriate for every human. All of us are looking for our purpose in life. Why am I here on this earth? What has God made me to do? And finding that purpose, or what some of us would say theologically, finding our calling, and then living into that calling, and then knowing when to move on to the next section of calling is really very, very important. Many people have said, just follow your passion. It'll take you to your calling. Other people have uh, uh, kind of a systematic way of approaching, finding this. Other people say it's tied in with spiritual gifts. Our guest today has found his calling, lived into his calling, sustained his calling in a marvelous way that's really made Seattle a richer city in many profound ways, and uh, has also known when it's time to move on and discover the next chapter of his life. So the man that I'm talking to today is Scott Nolte. He was for decades the founding director of Taproot Theater in Seattle, still is the founder, no longer the director as he's retired and moved into a new chapter of life. Scott and I have been friends for many, many years, and when we were in college, even uh, spent some time together in musical theater. I was playing as a percussionist in the orchestra, and he was in one of the lead roles in a musical at Seattle Pacific University, where we both attended. Then our paths went separate ways for about 30 years, and then we became good friends and have enjoyed many, many conversations about a wide range of topics, but particularly about leadership and living faithfully into our callings. So, Scott, I want to thank you so much for making the time to join us today. Good to be here, Richard. You did something that is very rare. You started a Christian theater. That's rare in itself. And then you sustained that theater for over 40 years. This week, that theater, Taproot, celebrated its 45th anniversary. Sustaining any theater is rare. Sustaining a Christian theater is even rarer. And in the city of Seattle, this theater has an outstanding reputation among the theater community. I'm just intrigued by how you got started and how you sustained this. But maybe we can begin with how you found your calling and how that led to the founding of Taproot Theater. Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> uh, if I go all the way back to high school, I thought I would end up in law. And that's kind of that era of a lot of social action and the era of both the Jesus people as well as protests and, and civil rights marches. So there's a bit of an activist in me from the get-go. But when I was in, in high school, my conversion actually happened after seeing Ben-Hur. And I had friends uh, who are very active with uh, Young Life, and I, had, and I grew up in the church. But something about Ben-Hur and the presence of Jesus that are sort of reflected on the faces of the people who meet him for the first time said a lot to me about both um, who Jesus was, the impact he had on people, but then as that sort of developed, it's, it became the sense of, well, what happens when people are, are, are brought face to face with the, the incarnation 
of, mm. of things that are, are gospel rooted. Mm. So that when I went to college, I did have a scholarship. I won while well, I, maybe the second week of college, actually, uh, to be in the uh, chancel players, they called it back then. So a trip that traveled out and performed at churches. So I got my feet deep into theater from, from the get-go. And I slowly gravitated from, I think I'm going to law, to I think I'm teaching kindergarten, to I'm going to do children's theater, now I'm going to do full-bore theater. And a lot of it comes back to this sense of theater incarnates ideas and truths or, or fallacies. And what happens when we are brought face-to-face with that incarnation, as well as stories? And at least in, in my mental movie playing of Jesus telling parables, I see him as animated. I hear him doing voices, if that's what's needed, in order to convey the power of the story and to compel people past the filter of doctrine or rules. But now how does the rest of the implication of the gospel or the implication of God's truth live out. Mm. And so I was fascinated by it. It drew me towards that sense of calling that, no, I think I'm being drawn fully towards theater. And it was during spring break of our senior year. If that's where a few of us were sorting through, well, what do we do next? And um, six of us said, well, by gum, let's start a theater. <laughs> that reflects the the depth of our our values and our faith, and what does our faith bring to the marketplace of ideas and to, of, of theatrical entertainment if, in a sense, we are choosing material and how we operate based on uh, never having to suppress our faith. But on the other hand, when you said Christian theater, we never gave ourselves that moniker um, in part because Christian as an adjective, I'm sure you know, Christian as an adjective is really weird. Yes. So is it a is it a Christian drive-in burger restaurant? Is it a is it a, a Christian um, shovel? And so we kind of backed away from that and knew that we are founded uh, on the basis or on the calling of what our faith was going to bring to the selection of material. And in a city like Seattle, where at that time only one in five attended a religious community of any sort. Right. And of course, I ran the gamut from Baha'i to, to charismatic Christian churches right. um, in a significantly unchurched, institutionally unchurched and uninterested in religious things city. Well, how can we be a theater and be a crossroads? So that's kind of the, the germ of how this thing got started. And, you know, lo and behold, here, here the company is 45 years down the road. One of the things that intrigues me, Scott, that you and I have never spoken talked about really is uh, you started this on a shoestring, I believe. In other words, uh, many people, when they're interested in developing something new from an entrepreneurial perspective, will uh, use Kickstarter or will go to venture capitalists and you know raise funds. Can you give us a little window into just the practical side of how you thought about putting food on the table with such a bold venture from the outset? That first couple years or so of trying to get this thing started, I think everybody had, well, everybody did have other jobs. Uh, My wife, Pam, was a substitute school teacher. Uh, One of the other guys was driving bus for Seattle Public Schools. I was, of course, waiting tables. 
and so there was a, a lot of, of, of self-support that went into this. And at least in the arts, it's not uncommon for people to have a number of side gigs going all the time to cobble together a livelihood. And in, in, in our case, we were self-supporting that way. After about two years, things were picking up pretty dramatically. And we were doing a two dozen or more uh, touring performances in schools and churches and libraries over the course of a month. Then we were sort of hitting the wall of exhaustion that we needed to find a way to move people to some bare bones salary uh, with health insurance. And so there was both the the revenue which needed to be earned through performances, as well as beginning that aspect of, of fundraising that needed to happen as well. And in the performing arts, typically about half of the budget is going to come from donations. And so we were not funded quite that way in terms of proportionally at the beginning, but it's sort of parallel to that idea of GoFundMe campaign to get things off the ground, except in our case, the donation revenue stream is an industry standard because the goal is not just pay people who are doing the work, but the goal is to try to figure out how to make the work as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. Right. So whether it was school performances or touring to churches or eventually with the main stage and pricing tickets, it's like, well, what are the ways that we can find a way to underwrite this as much as possible in order to guarantee access? So in a sense, that's kind of missional within the industry and in a point of you know tension as you figure out how to make this add up at the end of the day so you're taking care of staff and guest artists and teachers and technicians and and uh, and the audience. So, what's interesting to me in that story is you didn't have an ambition to go into professional fundraising. Like your your ambition is to bring incarnational messages through acting and producing and directing plays and yet because of that ambition suddenly an entirely different skill set maybe several new skill sets are called upon could you just kind of muse on that with me because i think there's a a prevailing mentality sometimes in in our age that says you know i'm going to do this thing that i do well and nothing else and yet often we end up sacrificing the resilience needed and the adaptability needed to make an endeavor succeed if we're not willing to go outside of our primary area of strength in in our case starting a theater when we're i think i was 21 <laughs> and didn't have any outside uh, professional experience uh, was was crazy by all, by all standards, just crazy. And I think over the course of the months and the years and then the decades, it really was a challenge to me and to others to continue to acquire new skills. Or as you're able and as you grow, well, then you're able to acquire people who are smarter than you are in order to, to fill in the gaps of uh, whether it's of course, marketing and development and everything else that goes into running 
uh, a nonprofit theater or, or any business when it comes right down to it. And within that tension is how to not lose sight of what the primary vision was and get absorbed into just kind of running the beast. And so that's, I think, where you think of people who whose passion ebbs because now they're down in the weeds of taking care of things that had nothing to do with why they started this, this entity to begin with. And in some cases, that's just the maturation of what the founder or the CEO needs to step up to be. Mm-hmm. And it's better to carry the torch and run uh, because you are the person endowed by the board of directors to be the spokesman or to be the, the lead discerner in terms of bringing things to to your department staff, the other leadership in the company to say, what about all this, guys? Here's where I'm thinking. What do you all think? How, how do we find our way through this? If I go back to one thing you said uh, in terms of a calling and I think, Richard, you and I talked about the difference between vocation and employment. Yes. And calling is going to happen whether it's my job or not. Yep. So if you're, I'm con- again, in the context of your giftedness, if you really are passionate about something, you will find a way to do that. And it may or may not pay the bills, but it may have to jockey around with how much time you can give that. So if I put that side by side with my vocation was theater production and directing plays to incarnate these things, to move the hearts and minds of an audience, my job, my employment on this polarity had to include, boy, I need to figure out budgeting and and more sophisticated fundraising. And boy, in the last two decades, let me see, the the arson, a gas explosion, a lawsuit, all these other sorts of things that have nothing to do with what I'd rather do with my time. Exactly. But they are part of, of shepherding the mission along. I'll share a story, and then I want to get into some of those uh, things that you just referenced, the, the, the challenges along the way. When you talk about moving an audience, Scott, uh, you You've invited me to many, many uh, plays, and my wife and I have gone to many of the plays. I didn't grow up involved in theater other than as a musician, and to be blunt, dirty little secret down in the orchestra pit is sometimes we bring books and read and just check out. (laughs) We're not even engaged in the play. But I will say one of maybe a dozen of the most profoundly moving memories during my 25 years I've now lived in in Seattle was uh, going to a play and I don't remember the title, but it was about a guy who left his family in New York and moved to Seattle. And he came from a, I believe it was a Jewish family where you just don't leave. You don't, you don't move away. And I moved away from California to Seattle in college uh, for reasons beyond the scope of today. But as this play unfolded, it was it was a comedy. But as the play unfolded, there were some really poignant moments. And I remember just sobbing at one point. I was so moved by the strength and bond of family and mindful in a way I'd never been mindful before of how much my family in California missed me. I don't think it ever sunk in fully until going to your place. So that's just a that's just one of no doubt tens of thousands of examples people being moved by this incarnational piece that you talk about. So so thank you for that. That's it's amazing what you have done there. That's a great example Richard of of the story and the characters sort of sneak up on you. 
Exactly. And they, they remind you of something that you haven't actually been able to put into words. And that, that has happened, you know, so many times in different folks I've talked to that have, has changed their understanding of their political position, their, their family relationships, thoughts about race and diversity. Yes. And we could write it all down and kind of put it on a little card and give everybody the rule. But until you're moved emotionally, until it really kind of cuts through all the filters and you understand the humanity behind these ideas, then it, it's just sterile. But we cut through and it becomes like, oh, yeah, that is that is part of my story. That is part of that, that reflects my blind spots. And I yep. need to pay attention. So you have this powerful work that is developing. And then periodically, you're faced with profound challenges that would be, according to some conventional wisdom, reasons to cash in your chips and do something else. And yet you stayed with it. In fact, it seems to me that one time when we were conversing, you said to me, there's kind of a seven-year cycle where it feels like every seven years, this work that you had begun was put to the test. Can you talk about that a little bit and how you discern when to keep going and then we'll get to this in a few minutes but how you discern as well uh when to move on but for now let's focus on this keep going because you kept going for well over 40 years i have joked but it's not really funny that if there was a collective spiritual gift among the staff it would be perseverance (laughs) you know like i said before we we've had an arson and we had to rebuild and we've had I don't know, I don't know, seven recessions since we started the theater. And there was a gas explosion uh, across the street and down the alley that actually damaged the whole front of our brand new building. There's been a whole bunch of things that I don't think that God ever turned off the spigot that was part of what kept the the commitment to Seattle and the commitment to, to our audience. It, he never turned that off. So it was always a sense of, okay, well, how do we rally now to figure out how to get back to work and do what we've been called to do? And that's that's speaking on, on the corporate level, because I think that's a different story in terms of, you know, how I rebound or may eventually have, have chosen to step aside. But in terms of uh, at those particular times, I knew we had to just figure out how to rally and work our way through this crazy time and get back to it. And I, I think that is probably just part of me as well in terms of I'm overall a pretty resilient person. And I think the staff that we acquired over the years likewise felt just very uh, thrilled and empowered to be part of an organization that was going to see our way through all different kinds of mm-hmm. of semi-tragedies and and obstacles. And, you know, dadgum, we're going to we're going to work our way through this and we'll be back. We'll be stronger. And by the grace of God, yeah, we are still here. I think theaters do collapse faster than bad restaurants. So, you know, we're, we are still here. And I think we did. I, I think, like you said, we, we did see oddly, you know, some kind of weird out of the blue crisis about every seven years and, you know, come out of that. And I, uh, the other thing, Richard, is that not only was perseverance part of our challenge, I think the cycle that you know from Romans where you have suffering produces perseverance, which goes right. to character, which goes to hope. Right. And I always saw that as a wheel or as a cycle, because once your hope is restored, you're actually prepared for the next set of challenges or suffering or however you want to 
call that, you're ready for that next thing, which can really knock your wind out. But hope leads you into that, which then empowers you to to persevere again. And again, it rebuilds the character of the individual or the, the organization. Hope is restored. We saw our way through this. God is faithful. He's in his throne. Oh, look, something else is going to happen. That that has been my my dependable cycle to know that we will work through this. And on the other side of this, we are better people. <laughs> so uh, if you were to counsel a younger person who's hit a wall vocationally, it could be a bad boss, it could be a question about the integrity of the company, it could be boredom. What kind of counsel do you give to help people discern this is the time to power through or this is the time to walk away? You know, I think I will fall back to that sense of separating what your your calling or your vocare, your vocation mm-hmm. really is. And then looking around to say, no, is it best put to use here? Or is is it really the option to look around for a better place in which I need to play that out? That option of is if this is the right place and things are rocky, is it uh, symptomatic of the moment? Is it systemic and it ain't going to go away? Is staying in place with a toxic working environment or a belligerent, abusive employer? Um, maybe it is best to go away to maintain my own sense of, of clarity in order to, I, I, I know my vocari, I need to find a place where it is going to work out and I don't fritter away my, my hope, don't fritter away my giftedness in a place where it's really not going to, to rise up and be put to use. I don't, I've talked to plenty of, of actors and directors and teachers over the years. And again, we're the, we're a breed that it is rare to be in an employment state like I was for four decades. Usually, actors are freelancing all the time. So whether they're also selling real estate or school teachers or or waiting tables or any number of things to cobble together a livelihood, some of those conversations are: if your calling is to to be an actor, does it need to adapt to this moment? because you are now married and have children and you need to have a certain level of financial support. Well, what do you want to do differently for the next 5, 10, 15 years um, that, that keeps you with one foot in there, but just knowing that right now your your priorities shift. I think Madeline Lingle, she and her husband, when they had small children, her husband had been a working actor and they, they left New York and bought, a, I think, a grocery store in a small town. <laughs> And that's what they did when their kids were little. And then eventually he went back to the theater, but there was a deliberate sense of, for this time, we need to go out into the desert for a while and not lose track of our dreams or our giftedness, but we need to adapt to the priorities that we have right now. Yeah, that's a really good word. I The, the language that I use uh, to make that same distinction is uh, context and calling. And I, I say to people, you know, your calling has to do with how you're wired, how God has made you. And it's really important to discover that and fan that into flame. The context in which that, that calling finds expression may change 10 times or may never change. Mm-hmm. That's, but that's secondary. And I find that many people today are more worried about context. Is it is it Amazon or is it Boeing? Is it San Diego or is it Wichita? Is it you know missions or some kind of business endeavor? 
And those are not unimportant questions, but if I don't know yet how I'm wired, then it's much harder to answer those questions. So that leads me to the, the next piece, which is how a person discerns when it is time to move into a next chapter. You've been in that discerning process, and uh, tell us a little bit about how the discernment process has gone for you. You know, probably four or five years ago, um, coming out of, boy, like I said, the arson, the capital campaigns, plural, rebuild, build a new theater, explosions, all kinds of stuff. I definitely was wearing down, and my my vision for the theater was not uh, collapsing, but in terms of, of needing to reflect on how much energy do I have in me and for how many more years would I apply it in the day-to-day role that I had. And the day-to-day role was often, you know, six days a week, as well as long days, and sometimes doing some other book work on on Sundays, sort of in the gaps of whether I was reading a script or having to make some notes on something. So it was, in in a large part, it, it was still all-consuming. And I really was getting to that point of questioning my ability to do this successfully uh, and not squander the organization or, or my health or Pam's and my mm. future. So I had to back away. And I had, uh, prior to this, been collecting memoirs on um, the Camino de Santiago in Spain. And Pam knew that I, I really wanted to do it someday. So in 2017, she said to me that I should do it the next year in, in 2018. And it was a, a challenge to make the time to do it. But part of this was really guided by that sense of it's sort of a strange sabbatical thing to go walk on a trail for um, 32 days and largely by yourself. But there's there's people you meet and, and it's it's really pretty extraordinary. But I was walking on a trail every day for six hours or so a day and largely in my own head with time to pray for everybody on my staff, all of my family by name, pray through our future, Mm. and really came away with that sense of, you know, the end of 2020 is going to be A-OK. And that's two and a half years from when I'm hiking. So that's plenty of time to prepare the theater and my staff and for Pam and me to prepare for what might be next as well. And so that was my process and came home and Pam and I talked about it. And so this wasn't like a one-sided decision. We really, when I left Seattle, you know, Pam said, well, you know, don't make the decision for us. It's, it's my decision too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And she was really in the, the same place that we were able to kind of lock arms and say, yeah, we're moving towards stepping away from our day-to-day management roles at the end of, of 2020. Because my last year was a COVID year, it was very odd. Very, very bizarre in terms of uh, what I had wanted to do in 2020 largely didn't happen. But that's just sort of the roll of the dice in terms of how that last year went. But there never really was a point going into COVID or in other points where I felt like, no, I'm going to retract my my letter of resignation. I'm, I want I need to stay. I'm the only one who could see this thing through. Hmm. No, I really felt like God had said, no, end of 2020, hey, I'm, that's that is it. And so that I, I've made peace with that. And now I'm trying to figure out what in the world am I, <laughs> what am I going to do now? Exactly. Um, 
Well, one of the things that's intriguing about that story is many people are tempted to stay in a setting until they know with a great deal of certitude what's next, and then they'll leave for what's next. You have chosen a different path, my friend, where you've said, well, uh, essentially you've said God has spoken. It's time to close this chapter, and I'm going to let this chapter close, and then allow the next chapter to unfold when it unfolds. And that uh, I commend you for. It's very courageous. Has that been uh, challenging or life-giving so far? Just kind of express how that's gone. Uh, the first couple months have been like, it took me six weeks to clean out my office, we'll put it that way, Yep, yep. and to get things resettled here at home. I, I am in a process with, uh, I don't know, uh, Richard, it's like, it'd be like a life coach in, in terms of discerning my, my previous sense of vocation. What are the gifts that are even sideways gifts to what I've been doing for the last four decades? Mm-hmm. How might those things still work out in the coming years? And it's possible that during 2020, I would have done more work to drum up future theater directing or, or teaching opportunities, but nobody knew when theaters or colleges were going to be back in business. So it was like pointless to send out resumes or letters of interest. So I, I've had to sort of bear with the fact that this was a much more unpredictable period than thought I was heading into, but I still am going through this process of of wanting to understand what really fires me up in the past and how that might play out in the future. In one of my previous careers, I was a cook at a restaurant for five years. So maybe I need to be more involved with the community meals at, at Bethany in the coming year, just because they could use someone who knows how to use a knife. Hmm. And on the other hand, someone who's, I'm still happy to wash pots. I can do that too. So it, serving is still deep in my heart. And I just I haven't committed yet to exactly where that's going to be. And I think parallel with that is understanding that I'm speaking for myself and also know that Pam and I have things which we can do together. So what are the adventures that Pam and Scott will take on to serve alongside each other or be able to do some things for fun, which were limited by the crazy theater schedule of the last four decades? Uh, it's like if we're on a track and we're both running a race, you finished first <laughs> and I'm behind uh-huh. you and I'm watching you and I'm trying to learn from you. And so I find that tremendously encouraging, Scott. I want to thank you on behalf of listeners. I also want to let everyone know that uh, we'll have Scott back a second time just to talk about uh, his trek on the El Camino, which I know is a profound experience. Uh, done by many. Uh, we offer at Bethany a hyper-abbreviated version of that in our Ancient Paths experience, whereby we want to give people space to hear from God directly through solitude and uh, encounters in the wilderness. Uh, we'll put links up on that uh, for this podcast and invite you to the summer 2021 program. But Scott, I'd like to have you back for that. And I want to thank you for taking the time today. Your journey is uh, uh, encouraging to many, many people. And I think the principles that you've articulated regarding finding your calling, sustaining your calling, discerning next next chapters are uh, helpful for everyone. So thank you for taking the time. It's been great talking to you, Richard. Thank you. 
All right, everybody. We'll see you next time on the Toward Wholeness podcast. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye.